Thank you, Robin. You know, I appreciate everyone being here this morning, and I know that there are a lot that have tuned in from a lot of different places, and I appreciate you choosing to be with the High Point family this morning. You know, a few years ago, my mother moved from her house in East Texas, where she lived with my father before he passed away, and my brother and sister and I had to go through and help her cull through her things because she's moving to a much smaller place. And if you've been through that experience, you know how challenging it is because it's not just, okay, what are you going to need for your new place? And, okay, who wants this and who wants that? There are a lot of things that don't have a lot of monetary value, but they have a lot of sentimental value. And I found myself up on a hot summer day up in the attic, and I ran across an old, musty tent. This is one of those army surplus tents that my dad had gotten cheap, and it brought back a whole host of memories of going camping with the family. Um, I, I don't know if on this particular time, if my sister and mother were with us, if they were, they were sleeping in the car, because it was just my dad and my brother on one of the worst camping nights I can ever remember. As we pulled into the state park, the park ranger told us, hey, there's a bad storm coming. Y'all need to get ready. And so we quickly set up this old army, musty canvas tent and got it ready. And then we quickly made dinner and we ate and then we battened down the hatches for the evening. And no more had we zipped it up. Here came a gully washer. Boy, it was raining. It was a monsoon. There was wind. There was rain. There was lightning. There was thunder. We're scared to death. My dad says it's going to be fine. And with that, he went on to sleep. But the last thing he said is, boys, whatever you do, don't touch the tent well my dad's snoring kept us up and after about an hour my brother's curiosity got the better of him and finally he reached up and he poked at the canvas tent my dad later explained to us that when he did that he broke the surface tension on the canvas cotton fabric and it caused the water to start puddling in that one place and then it started dripping a little bit and then it started dripping a lot. Well, I just started cracking up at my brother's self-inflicted misery. And so he reached across my dad, who's sound asleep, and he poked at my side of the tent. Sure enough, it started dripping down on my forehead and onto my pillow. And so I tried to turn my body around and put my feet down where it was dripping. And when I did, I brushed up against the side of the tent. It started leaking over there. And so my brother's laughing at me. And so I poked on his side and he poked again. And before long, that tent looked like a, a kitchen colander, a strainer that was just dripping everywhere. And by the time we got up in the morning, my dad was yelling as because he saw that the whole tent was full of water. You know, I think in uncertain times like we're facing right now, it feels like our life is kind of like that old leaking tent. You know, when this virus came around, the first drip that we started feeling that was disrupting our life is we heard about the, the dangers of what was coming our way. And if you're like me, you started watching the news and you started, you know, watching this thing, what's happening over in China and as this is spreading through Asia and into Europe, you're like, okay, is it going to stop there? Is it going to come our direction? 
And then you start hearing about Washington. And then you start hearing about what's happening up in New York. You're like, okay, but is it going to make its way down to the Midwest and down into Texas and into Collin County? And so you start hearing these things. And so you had the drip, drip, drip that gets faster and faster. And then we have the economic instability that's been happening and the uncertainty. And you start asking yourself questions like, am I going to have a job when all this is said and done? Are they going to keep paying me? Can I keep paying my employees? And then we have another drip that's coming down is, what's life going to look like on the other side? And so we have this slow drip that starts picking up steam going, okay, what is the new normal for our family? Am I going to be able to retire Am I going to be able to stay retired? Is my family going to be able to keep living the way we've been living? Or are we going to have to dial things back? And so there's a lot of uncertainty. And when you have multiple drips, sometimes it feels like the water around you is is unmanageable. And so what I want to do this morning is get us to higher ground. I want us to provide a firm foundation. I want us to provide a watertight shelter for us to live out our days you know, I had a friend who's a preacher down in Houston sent me a text last night. He said, this is probably the most unique Easter of our lifetime. And if ever the people of God need to hear the good news of Easter, it's this morning. And that's what I want to do. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, the letter that Paul sent to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is writing to a very, um, let's just say it's a church that's struggling. And they have all kinds of different issues. And so Paul, in the first 14 chapters, is addressing some of these things and maybe how the church has gotten off track. And so finally in verse 15, it's almost like Paul says, you know what? We need to deconstruct this thing. Let's take it back to the foundation. Let's get back to what is the key teaching on which we're building our church. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1, he said, Now, brothers and sisters, boy, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you out in the marketplace, that you stopped and listened and said, I want to know more about this. That I preached to you, which you received, and you became a Christian. You said, I want to become a Christ follower. I want what you're preaching. And on which you have taken your stand, By this gospel, this good news, you are saved if you hold firmly to this. Hold firmly to the word that I preach to you. Otherwise, if you're getting rid of what I preach to you, well, this has all been a waste of time. It's all in vain what we've been doing. For what I received, I passed on to you. I received a message from Jesus on the road to Damascus where I had my own personal encounter with Jesus and I converted there on the spot and I told you about that. And I said, our first importance is this. I said, buckle up. This is what's important. That Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. That he was buried. He, he didn't pass out. He didn't swoon. Oh, he was dead. They took him down after they pierced his side, and they put him in the tomb and laid him there. But he was raised on that third day, just as he said he was. He didn't die and remain there. No, the Spirit of God brought him back to life, according to Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter. You guys know Peter. 
and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Though some have fallen asleep, they passed on. But then he appeared to James. And then he appeared to me as one born abnormally. Because I didn't, I didn't come to Christ like the rest of these did. After his ascension, he came back to convert me. For I am the least of the apostles. And I do not know and, and, and even deserve to be called an apostle. Why? Because I'm the one that persecuted the church. I persecuted the church of God. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace that was given to me, you know what? It was not without effect. No, it wrecked me. I tell you, it did. And whether then it is I or it is they, the other apostles that are preaching to you, we're all going to tell you the same thing. And this is what you believed. What's the Apostle Paul doing? He's trying to go at a, at a controversy that's happening among the brothers and sisters at Corinth. And what he's talking about is that there's a rumor going around that Jesus may have raised from the dead, maybe not. But you have no access to the resurrection. There, there's no way that you're going to be raised. And when your last breath is done, well, that's it. And Jesus, what Paul is saying is, no, I can tell you, Jesus did come back from the dead. He goes, I am an eyewitness to this. And if Jesus rose from the grave, so can you if you're united with Christ Jesus. He goes, it's not just me. He goes, I can give you the name. I can give you the address. Over 500 people that Jesus appeared to. And these eyewitnesses bear testimony to what I preach to you. The good news about Jesus Christ. Not only for him, but how that good news translates into our life. You know, former agnostic Lee Strobel while serving as a legal analyst for the Chicago Tribune, asked for a sabbatical to spend a year proving that the whole Jesus thing was a hoax. He went into his boss, who was an atheist. He goes, you know what? I know you're not a believer. I'm not a believer. Why don't I take a little time off, and I'm going to produce some massive headlines. I'm going to go in and prove this whole Jesus thing was just a sham. It was a hoax. His boss said, I like it. Take all the time that you need. The only problem is, six months into his discovery, he gave his life to Jesus Christ in baptism. And he wrote a best-selling book called The Case for Christ. And his boss called him back in. He's like, Lee, where did you go astray? How, how did you get off the mark? You went in to disprove this. Now you're a Christian. Here's what he told his boss. He said, secular sources... There's so many secret sources that are verifying the facts that were laid out in Scripture. And then he said it's the sheer number of eyewitnesses. It's the sheer number of these in the behavior of what these eyewitnesses did. He said Jesus appeared alive in more than a dozen instances to more than 500 people, to skeptics, to doubters, as well as to believers. A whole host of, of people heard him. And he says, as the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, I, I've been in a lot of courtrooms. I never saw a trial with 515 individuals 
all saying the exact same thing. It had to be true. So if these eyewitnesses and their stories bear witness, why did Jesus choose who he chose to go and appear to? What was the purpose did he have for his appearances? In Easter's past, we've gone in and we've looked at some of these one-off appearances. The first of these is the reinstatement of Peter. Maybe you've heard this, this story of Peter denying Jesus three times on the night he was arrested. Jesus said, hey, uh, you all are going to scatter once they go in and, and arrest me. And, and Peter's like, I don't know about the rest of these guys, not me. He goes, yeah, you are, Peter. And in fact, you're going to die me three times for the rooster crows. So sure enough, Jesus is arrested. Peter follows while the rest scatter. But he's out there and he's warming his hands by the fire. And someone comes up, aren't you with this Jesus guy? He goes, no, no, I'm, I'm not. Wait, I, I think you're with him. No, you're mistaken. No, you're a Christ follower. No, I'm not. I'm telling you, I don't. Right there in the rooster crows. So Jesus appears to to all the disciples, and then he does a one-off conversation with Peter as he's down by the seaside, and he's grilling out some fish. He said, Peter, three times you deny me. Do you love me? Oh, yes, Lord. Okay, I want you to feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And three times he asked me, one for each of these denials in John chapter 21, three times Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. He goes, okay, I want to put you to work. I need you to lead this church. I need you to preach at Pentecost. I need you to be active in the kingdom of God. And so he reinstates Peter. The second one of these appearances comes in John chapter 20 with the restoration of Thomas. Maybe you've heard the story of doubting Thomas. See, after Jesus was arrested, they all scatter and go their different ways. But then they end up coming back together. And, and they gather together and they're having a meal. They're going, what do we do now? Jesus isn't around. He comes and he appears before them. And he's hugging them. And he's saying, you know, I, just like I said, I'm back among you. And he's counting it. Where's Thomas? I don't know. We can't find him. Go find him. Tell him that I have come back as I said I would. And sure enough, they, they go and they find the bunker where Thomas is hiding for fear he'll be arrested as well. Like, Thomas, come out. Jesus is back from the dead, just as he said. He goes, you know what? I've spent a lot of time with you guys. I think you saw a ghost. Unless I put my finger in his hands, unless I put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe it. So he said, come have dinner with us. And sure enough, Jesus comes in and says, Thomas, come on over. Put your finger here. Put your hand here. Lord, it's you. So he restores the faith of Thomas. His last thing that he had to do was the reclamation of James. The reclamation of James in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we just read. Who is this James? A lot of people are thinking, well, could that be like James and John, the disciples, or there's like a James the lesser? No, Jesus had already appeared to them. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, so after Jesus appeared to the 500, he went to go find his brother James. So if Peter was a backslider and, and Thomas was a doubter, doubting Thomas, uh, James is just flat out an unbeliever. He doesn't believe in his brother. 
You know, it had to be rough growing up with Jesus as a half-brother. If your half-brother is the son of God. I mean, it's not enough that they had to share bunk beds and he got his hand-me-downs. But don't you know that his mother Mary always was drawing correlations and comparisons? James, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? Because I can't, Mom. Yes, you can. No, I can't, Mom. All you have to do is just ask yourself the question, yeah, Mom, I've heard it. WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's right, that's right. Okay, at some point, James had had enough. And at age 30, Jesus begins to start his ministry. And he goes and announces to the family, my time has come. I now must go. And there are some that are kind of wondering, well, I wonder how long he'll be gone. Will he come back? This thing's doomed to fail. Others are like, good riddance. See ya, wouldn't want to be ya, go. And so they're surprised when they start hearing around Galilee, word comes back to Nazareth, your brother Jesus did some pretty incredible things. What do you mean? Well, he's casting out demons. Um, he's healing the sick. Multitudes of people are gathering and he's talking with them. And they say he's a pretty good preacher. A lot of folks want to hear him. In fact, it's just incredible. They're like, it can't be. Oh, yeah, he's even appointed in building a team of disciples. James and some of the brothers are going, why in the world would people fall for this? One night, Jesus was speaking at the home of Andrew and Peter in Bethsaida. And it's not just word getting back to Nazareth. Word has also gone all the way to Jerusalem. And so the religious leaders sent out some scribes and some Pharisees and teachers of the law to go out on the campaign trail to kind of heckle him along the way. He's gaining way too much popularity. Why don't you go and, and be kind of a plant in there and wait and jump on one of his teachings? Sure enough, that's what the teachers of the law do. But when they see the miraculous signs and they hear his teaching and everyone's believing in this, they raise their hand and said, there's power here, but it's not power from God. It's power from the devil himself. This is a possession of Beelzebub. That's why Jesus is doing these things. And the crowd's going, no, 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 it's not what's happening. Then there's a knock at the door. And everyone stops. And go, can you go see who that is? Um, yes, can you? Uh, who is it? Um, tell Jesus it's his mother and his brothers. Uh, and, and we want to talk with him. Um, they say it's your mother and your brothers, and you need to go home now. You've caused quite a trouble. You tell my mother and my brothers, I, I know what's going on. They think I'm out of my mind. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, he's out of his mind. He's looney tunes. Don't listen to him. You tell him my mother and my brothers are those that are here gathered, that believe in my name and believe what I'm doing. Well, it was, wasn't bad enough that Jesus was doing this in the area. Eventually, eventually, his tour makes his stop in Nazareth. And so Jesus goes to preach and teach in his hometown. And he goes to the synagogue there. And the people were amazed at what Jesus said. Matthew 13 and verse 55 says, hold on. Isn't this the carpenter's son? 
isn't this Joe's boy? Isn't his mother named Mary lives like two blocks away? Uh, and his brothers, James and Joseph, and Simon and Judas? What's going on here? What, what's happening? What's interesting is in this passage, they don't turn and say, Mary, is this your son? Uh, James, isn't this your brother? It's kind of weird. They didn't do that because his family didn't show up at church that day. Their own son, their own brother was there proclaiming the good news of Jesus, was preaching his first sermon in his home church, and they said, you know what, we're going to stay home that day. Why? John 7 and verse 5 says, brothers did not believe him. It's good to note that James in particular, his rejection of Christ wasn't trivial. Apparently it got very personal. And, And he really struggled with this. Scholar Gary Habermas says this, for it to be remembered over many decades, 20 or 30 years later, when they're writing down scripture, that they talk about James being his unbelief was probably rather staunch. He was done with his brother. He wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, when Jesus was led up the hill to to Calvary, and word gets back to Nazareth, hey, your, your brother's on trial. I think they're going to crucify him. Only Mary came. Jesus is on the cross. He's looking through the crowd for familiar faces. He sees a couple of followers and stuff. And he's looking for family members. He sees his mom. He's like, is there a brother? There's no one here. John, will you take my mom into your house? I don't know with her being here if my family's going to accept even my mom. Yeah, Jesus, I, I got her. That's how deep the division had become. After his resurrection... Jesus goes and first talks with his disciples. And then there's this huge gathering, over 500 people, brothers and sisters. They're going, that's Jesus. Word spreads all throughout the area. Jesus is risen. Really? Yeah, there are a whole bunch of us saw him. Word trickles back to Nazareth. Nothing. His family doesn't react at all. And after the restoration of, of Thomas... And after the reinstatement of Peter and the, the whole breakfast thing with the fish, Jesus is like, i got one more visit to make before I go back to the Father. And so he breaks free from these. He travels 19 miles from the Sea of Galilee back to Nazareth by himself. He didn't have to ask for directions. He knew exactly how to get home. He got, went down the familiar streets he turned there he saw the dusty driveway he walked right up to the door he took a deep breath and he knocked what in the world did he say to a brother who was a known skeptic what in the world do you say to a brother who if he wasn't part of the group that was going to throw him off the cliff in Nazareth he at least was saying yeah go go ahead I'm not going to stand in your way Good riddance. He stood idly by and did nothing. 
the, the door opens up, and there's James, and his jaw drops. He turns white as a sheet. And, and before he could do anything, Jesus says, James, I love you. I went to the cross for you and your sins. James, you need to understand, you weren't there when I spoke about this, but I'm the resurrection in the life. James, if, if, if you'll believe in me, the same power that raised me up after three days in the tomb. Yeah, I heard. That same power is available to you, James. I'm about to go back to my father. Do you believe who I say that I am, who I say who I am? James, you're my last stop. You're my brother, but I don't want to go back to the father until you're my brother. Immediately, the text tells us James became a believer. Here's what it wasn't. It wasn't a, hey, I know things have been awkward between us. I appreciate you coming by. Tell God I'm trying to do my best. Thank you for taking time. And he goes about his life. That's not what happened with James's life. It was a complete 180. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1, after the disciples watched Jesus ascend up into heaven, he tells them, go back to Jerusalem and pray and wait. And so that's what they do. They all gather. They go back to the upper room where they had the Last Supper, and they're all kind of crammed in there. And Acts chapter 1 and verse 14 says, the disciples, they all join together holding hands and constantly in prayer along with the women who had supported Jesus all this time. And Mary was there, the mother of Jesus. And with his brothers, James is there. James is there. Joe Jr.'s there. Simon's there. Jude is there. Immediately, James goes from being a known skeptic to a disciple to one of the key leaders in the church in Jerusalem in the Jesus movement. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 19, Paul tells the church at Galatia, hey, yeah, last time I, I breezed through Jerusalem, I, I caught up with James, the brother of Jesus, who, and the rest of the apostles. He's an apostle? Oh, Absolutely. The, the next chapter, uh, Paul is laying out how this movement's going to go. There's going to have to be a team that's for the Jewish people, bringing them to Christ, and a team for the Gentiles. Here's what Paul says. You know what? James and Peter and John, the three main pillars of the church here in Jerusalem. Well, they got together, and they agreed that we should go, we as Paul and Barnabas, that they agree that we should go to the Gentiles and preach to them, and they'll take the message to the Jews. In a short matter of months and years, James goes from being a complete agnostic and atheist, did not believe at all, to be one of the key leaders of the Church of Jerusalem. It was amazing. We don't know much more about James other than what we can glean from his powerful letter. But the historian Eusebius shares that James was noted for his piety in constant prayers. He had a passion for, for preaching the good news, and he had a passion for the poor, but mainly had a passion for praying. 
If he wasn't out helping the poor or preaching the good news, he was down on his knees there in the temple. In fact, his fellow apostles nicknamed him Old Camel Knees. Why? Up and down, every chance he got, he's walking back to the temple. He's crashing down on his knees in intercessory prayer for his fellow Jews to come to the saving message of Jesus. What happened to James? Well, like the other apostles, he was martyred. All of them went to their death, save John, the one that was beloved by Jesus. The Jewish historian Josephus said a group of scribes and Pharisees were furious that the apostle Paul got this close to them killing him. Paul had been arrested, and he was there in Caesarea. And they had asked for him to be tried back in Jerusalem, except he was never going to make it to Jerusalem. The apostle Paul was number one on the hit list. They're lying in wait, and they're ready. There's a narrow place he's going to come through. We're going to jump on him. He's never going to make it to Jerusalem. The only problem is, in Acts chapter 25, Paul appeals to Caesar. You're a Roman subject? We'll send you on to Caesar. So these scribes and these Pharisees are so frustrated that Paul slipped through their hands. They come back to Jerusalem and they're like, did you kill him? No. And blood was still in their eyes. And they're like, who can we kill? And they're like, camel knees go get James where is he he's in the temple he's always in the temple so they run over in a fit of rage and and they grab poor James and say get up say people come on over James here's what's gonna happen if you don't deny Jesus Christ is Lord we're gonna kill you Um, James has something to say James the floor is yours I too was an unbeliever until the risen Christ came to my door and showed me his hands and his side. Jesus is the risen Savior. James, it's not what we want you to say. They took him up. I don't think they went up a staircase on the outside. They took him up on top of the temple. And they called the crowd out. And they bound his hands. And they put him on the pinnacle of the temple. And they held him out there. And they said, we're going to lean you over. You've got one last chance. I'm telling you, James, if you do not deny the Christ, we're going to go. James has got something to say. Jesus is Lord. And they let him go. Historians said at the least he fell over 150 feet. If he was over on this side by the Kidron Valley, he fell close to 500 feet down the rocky, all the way to the bottom of the valley. But it didn't kill him. He caught his breath. And everyone ran over to look and see what happened to James. And he catches his breath and he says, Jesus is Lord. Listen up. And as he's preaching, the ones that threw him off grabbed the temple guard and said, go down and club him to death. The guard runs down from the staircase, runs outside, goes down to where James is. He's bleeding. He starts beating James. And in between blows, Josephus said, I saw it. He said, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Finally, the scribes and the Pharisees that were there said, take him outside where people can't hear him and stone him to death. That's what they did. His epitaph said, James the just, a servant of God and of the Lord 
Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't his half-brother. He was his Savior. That same James that wouldn't walk across the street to hear his brother preach at their home church was now proclaiming with his last breath that he was the risen Christ. I, I said that he was the final door that Jesus went and knocked on. I put forth the idea this morning, he has one more door to knock on, and that's yours. If you hear that knock today, first you're wondering, oh, should I get up? Should, should I wait for the Amazon guy to leave? You're looking out. And you open the door, and this is what you see is Jesus Christ. What is his message for you this morning? Is it like, like Peter I'm here to reinstate you. I, I know you've made some mistakes. I, I know some of those mistakes didn't really show well on me. I need you back. I want you a part of my kingdom. I want you actively part of my church. I want to reinstate you. Or maybe it's a message like Thomas going, what are you doing? Why are you so afraid? Why is this fear and doubts just holding you hostage? Why are you walking away from me when you need me the most? The resurrected Christ is at your door letting you know there's nothing to fear. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the reign of Jesus continues on. And it will continue until every single one of his adversaries and his enemies have been defeated. In verse 26, he said the final one of those is destroyed, and that will be death. Maybe you're like James. Maybe you started out strong. You, you were raised. Maybe you walked away from the church. Somewhere along the way, you just said, you know what, I'm done on this. If anything's going to happen in my life, well, it's going to be because I did it. I'm in control. I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm going to call the shots. I'm not letting any faith determine what happens. In times like this, we're reminded that maybe we're not in control. This virus that is around us is no respecter of person. And the economic ramifications will be far-reaching. But the message that I have for you this morning is Easter is all about new life. Easter is all about new beginnings. Let Jesus come to your door and let him solve any problems that you have. And may you be reinstated. May you be restored. And may you be reclaimed for the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, we find ourselves in uncertain times. And Lord, this is a perfect time for you to make up ground in our lives Lord, as many things that we've turned to for crutches have been pulled away from us, may we lean into you. Lord, help us to spend time in prayer. Help us to spend time reading your promises held in Scripture. Lord, we pray for all those that are with us and all those that are tuning in today. Lord, that each one of us will take a step closer to you. We ask that you be with those that are like Peter. We ask those that are like Thomas with their doubts. And Lord, we pray for the James that we know that needs to come back to you. Lord, we lift it all up in your son Jesus' name.
Amen.